It's the flash of adrenaline where everything stands still. Mantle finishes, and he's world champion. When something means so much to you, and you think you've actually done it and achieved it, and you spent 40 years of your life attaining that, it's the most amazing, amazing feeling. 30 years on from the moment he became Formula One world champion, the emotions are still fresh for Nigel Mansell. It was the crowning moment for one of the most popular drivers ever to take part in a Grand Prix. The atmosphere at Silverstone when Nigel won the British Grand Prix was turbocharged. Track invasions and wild celebrations to rival Ferrari fans at Monza or the Dutch Orange Army at Zandvoort. Mansell's spectacular overtaking moves stunned his fans and commentators alike. And, and, and Mansell going round the outside! Incredible! His never-say-die drives saw him beat some of the best drivers the sport has ever seen. In his years at Lotus, Ferrari and Williams, his adoring fans felt Nigel deserved to be a world champion. But time after time, it didn't happen. And colossally, that's Mansell! That is Nigel Mansell! And the car absolutely shattered. He's fighting for control. Mansell is out of the race. Now, this could change and will change the world championship. That tyre failure when he was racing for the title in 1986. A season-ending crash in 87 and a spin in 91. Nigel had finished second in the World Championship three times. For 1992, the pressure was on. I knew that this probably was my last chance. I risked a lot more than people know. Welcome to a special F1 Beyond the Grid with me, Tom Clarkson, and the 1992 Formula One world champion, Nigel Mansell. In 92, Nigel was again driving for Williams, who were, at the time, one of Formula One's top teams. Their car appeared to be ahead of the competition, but that didn't mean Mansell had it easy. Among his rivals were his teammate Riccardo Patrese, who was driving the same top-class Williams FW14B, and then there was one of the fiercest competitors and fastest drivers of all time. Brazil's Ayrton Senna, who was defending his third world title with McLaren. To mark the 30th anniversary of Nigel's championship, we're going to relive the season. The pain he drove through, the race wins he celebrated, the disappointments and the doubts he endured along the way. He's very honest, very self-critical and most of all, a great storyteller. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Nigel, it's fantastic to see you again. Can we go back 30 years, Nigel? Would you believe it's 30 years this year since you won the World Championship? Those memories still crisp? <laughs> no, I don't remember any of it, so tell me. <laughs> yeah, I'm fortunate I can still remember. Um, it, it was magical. It wasn't just 92. It was uh, a combination of from the late 60s, early 70s, mid 70s and single seaters, all the way to 92 to make the dream come true. And the, the hard work and, and the effort that went in, in all the years in Formula One before 92 turned around, 
92 was the payday when obviously we were able to get the world championship, which was which was very magical and it still, it still is till today. Of course it is. How confident were you and were Williams coming into that season? Confidence is a very dangerous thing. Um, I'd use the word incredibly optimistic. Confidence only comes when you start having success and you start knowing that the car is going to be reliable to finish the race. We, we had a lot of years where we had a competitive car like when I was with Ferrari in 89. And um, the unreliability of the car knocks your confidence to six. Uh, in 91, we were fairly confident. We had a, a great competitive package. And obviously, reliability played a massive role in 91. Uh, besides going for the championship then against Hetton too. And then even going back into the 80s in 86 and 87, the reliability of the cars are nothing like the reliabilities of the cars today, where rarely the driver has to worry whether the car is going to finish the race or not. So confidence is, is all um, uh, rationalized on putting everything in the pot, realizing what you can control, and extremely confident on what I could control, but very dubious as to what I couldn't control and the reliability of the car. The mechanic's doing a great job in the pit stop that a wheel didn't fall off, which it has done, obviously, as you know, when I was within eight points in 91 to catch Ayrton winning the Portuguese Grand Prix and came in for a pit stop and they forgot to put my four wheels on properly. But very optimistic. We knew we had a package that we could be competitive. But, you know, racing against McLaren and Honda in those days, when Ayrton said to me in 91, you got as close as you're going to get to me now. We've got a new engine coming out in six weeks with 70 more horsepower. I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell me another one. And of course, Honda delivered him another engine with another 70 to 100 horsepower and he was gone. So um, yeah, 92 was a, was a fantastic year and it couldn't have started off any better. Before we get into the races, I, I'm getting the vibe from you that your message to the team after 91 was sort the reliability and then, of course, there was the massive decision about active ride, wasn't there? Do we? Don't we? How clear cut was that? That, that had to be made in 91. Um, and obviously, we were, we're doing a lot of development work. But we did have a time, if you remember, when the active ride was uh, evolving. Uh, I think it was back in 88. Uh, there was one of the races I remember distinctly at Silverstone in the rain. And the car was so dangerous, it just tried to throw you off on every corner and, and try and kill you. And we converted um, my car back to a passive car overnight. And I went in the race. And if you remember, I think I came second or third. And, um, you know, because I could trust the car knowing what it was going to do. And it was a, it was a big shakeup for the team. Um, but obviously with developments and things getting more reliable, but yeah, it was, it, was, it was the way to go to try and keep the car more under control for more of the time. The problem was with the active car was it did get out of control. And when it got out of control, because we didn't have power steering, the only thing you had to keep the car in control was massive muscles in your arms. And having a, you know, uh, a brain transplant, having a lobotomy, because if you had a, a brain going into some of the corners, especially at Silverstone, you know, flat out, and then the car does a whoopsie to you in the middle of the corner, you can't physically hang on to it, you have a massive accident. And that phase both myself and Ricardo Petrezzi on many circuits around the world, but yeah. 
I think it phased him more than you because he did actually talk about your phenomenal upper body strength. And then, Nigel, you came in and just before the South African Grand Prix, the FIA weighed all the drivers for the first time. And I think you were two kilos lighter than Ricardo. And I think... He, I remember him being really frustrated. <laughs> How can well, he be stronger than me and lighter than me? <laughs> well, well, before I went on my campaign over the winter of 91, when I broke my foot in the last race in the monsoon in uh, Adelaide, and it's since been found with the footage, I ran over something which then made my car go straight off into the concrete wall. And it splintered three of my left toes in my left foot and completely broke the joints. It was a major, major decision on what to do because when I came back to America, because we were living in America then at the time, they took me straight into hospital and said, we need to operate straight away. And I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. I said, you know, hang on a minute. How long's the recovery? Three to four months. You know, I couldn't afford that time. I couldn't miss all the testing. I couldn't miss all the development. And I said, no, no, no. I said, it can wait. I said, if I walk on the inside of my foot, and don't put pressure on the outside of my foot, I can cope with it. Anyway, I had a, a doctor friend who had to come and argue with the hospital to release me because of the lawsuits over here. They said he needs an emergency operation to take blown spin, the bone splinters out of his foot and shave his foot and, and clean it up. And he said, look, and he doesn't want to. So then I went on campaign that winter. There was one set of boots I could wear with a carbon fiber insert so it, it didn't allow any of my toes to bend in my left foot because if it did, it was incredibly painful. And then I adjusted my racing boots to have this carbon flyer insert. And uh, fortunately, other than bracing myself, once you've done the start, you didn't need your left foot again. But part of my campaign was obviously after weighing all the drivers and Nelson, PK, Alan, Prostet and Senna, a number of other jockeys, even Michael Schumacher, when we were going out the pits, they already had half a second lap in their pocket because they're so much lighter than me. So, you know, I thought I've got to do something about this, even if it's a little thing I can do. So I decided to shave off. Uh, I think I shaved off 14 to 16 pounds through the winter training, going on a horrendous diet because when you've been in the game as long as I, I had then and, and I knew how close I'd been, I'd been bridesmaid three times to be a world champion, you know how to get the job done. Whether or not you're going to get the car, the engine, the mechanics, the team, the sponsors all to pull behind you to actually achieve your dream, that's something totally else. And um, But I knew that this is probably, literally probably was my last chance. My contract was up in 92 they tried to get rid of me in 92 for Ayrton and Alan and all the rest of it. My, my contract, fortunately, was very firm for 92. And obviously, what I just said there bore fruit because when I won the World Championship, they got rid of me straight away so Alan could come straight in and have the car. It was fantastic because we went through 91 into 92. I didn't tell anybody about my broken foot because, you know, uh, you got to be completely loony, haven't you, to drive the whole 92 season with a, with a broken left foot. And, and the proof there is in the pudding because after the last race in Australia, I was then on crutches for three, four months because they repaired a more broken, more damaged left foot than it was a year ago. But the job had got done. We, we won the race and 
Some of the races were prolific, just from the point of view of pain. But adrenaline overcomes everything. And if you're having a good time, you're winning and you're on a mission, which we were, I wasn't, I wasn't going to have my focus drawn to my foot or anybody else trying to sabotage 92. We got on with the job and it was a fantastic year. And you delivered. My God, did you deliver. Just very quickly, you just said a minute ago that Frank tried to get rid of you ahead of the 92 season. Yeah, well, that, that's nothing new. Um, he's done that to a number of drivers before. I didn't know about that ahead of the 92 season, though. Yeah, no, I mean, it's very difficult. To be fair, I understand the commercial side of Formula One. And just like when I signed uh, to be the number one driver in 88, and we were having Honda engines and we had a championship year in 88, we should have won the championship. 86, 87, runner-up. Engines were the best engines out there. But then Frank got paid a massive amount of money to sell them to McLaren, again to Alan and, and Ayrton. And of course, when they're winning and lapping everybody, no one's supposed to complain. But, you know, it's a very hard year. I think I only finished two or three races that year. Things change very quickly, or they can with some people. Let's talk now about those early races. You win you win five in a row. It's phenomenal. It, it had never been done before at the time. How amazing did it feel to be riding that crest of a wave? It felt great, obviously, but the more you win, the more concerned you get what's going to go wrong. Sort of fear of losing becomes a factor then. It's a fear of something going wrong. The cars, uh, the mechanics, you know, getting the strategy right. Back then when it was standing starts with no electronic aids, getting off the grid, not getting anybody's accidents, not making a bad start and, you know, causing problems. There's 26 cars on the grid all the time there, not 20. So there's a lot more cars to deal with. You know, coming around in traffic, we had blue flags, but nobody had to get out your way. You know, it's not like the regulations of today. It was very, very different. And so even if I say so myself, it was more an achievement back then than it's an achievement today. Basically because, you know, the technology of today is just uh, light years ahead of what it was back then. And did the left foot, the broken left foot, did it affect your feel on the clutch pedal? Did it make getting off the grid even harder? Yeah, I, I had to be very, very careful. Um, and I had painkilling injections put in my foot. Um, but I had to be very careful what I did, that I didn't overdo it because I, I still needed to feel the foot to feel the pedal. You know, even when, you know, the biggest problem I had, um, just diversifying when I hit the war in Phoenix in 93 and I had 148 stitches in my back. And I was qualifying 10 days later after being on the slab with a massive operation. I was qualifying at Indy with the stitches ripping. I basically had uh, uh, painkilling injections, neat anesthetic, put in my back and down back to my legs. But then I couldn't feel my legs to drive very well. So it was very difficult. But we got the job done. Do you think you've got what it takes to take on the tasks of Toto Wolf, Christian Horner or Gunter Steiner? Well, F1 Manager 2022 is a new, fully licensed management game putting you in the role of team principal at your favourite F1 team, ready to take on all the challenges of the 2022 season and beyond. Giving you the most authentic F1 management experience, fully licensed and brought to you in broadcast quality presentation. Drive every decision as team principal. Choose how to develop your car as the season progresses, manage your staff and hone your race strategy for each weekend. Live the drama of Formula One on and off the track. 
Be prepared to react to dynamic events such as changing weather, evolving track conditions or race incidents. Vote on upcoming rule changes to swing things in your favour and come out on top. Launching on PC, PlayStation and Xbox, summer 2022. Visit f1manager.com to wishlist the game on your platform of choice and follow at f1manager on Twitter to stay up to speed. Mansell crosses the line for Williams-Renault to win the San Marino Grand Prix very convincingly indeed, having led from start to finish. You win the opening five races of 92. You're on a roll and I'm talking... Kailami, Mexico, Brazil, Spain, Imola. Job done. We then go to Monaco. Pretty much the, the only race you hadn't won. You're winning, you're cruising. And Nigel Mansell, race leader by 29 seconds, is on his 70th lap. Eight laps to go, including the one that he is on. Between him and his first ever victory at Monaco... And then you come into the pits and it all flips on its head. Just talk us through those last seven laps. Yeah, the, the, the problem we had was either Wilnut was coming undone or we had a puncher in the rear left, which I felt going into the tunnel, the, the car had a huge wobble at the back end. And so we had no choice but to, to pit. We had a partially slow time coming into the pit. We got out, we got good rubber on, obviously, and uh, Monaco, um, well, it's just like the rules and regulations today. Uh, under the present regulations today, Ayrton could not have held me behind like he did because it was like a bus in front. Every time I went to overtake, he just blocked it. Once wave, second, third, fourth, fifth. You can't do that today under racing. And as they come through to complete lap 75 with three laps to go after they have done so, Ayrton Senna has got to keep Mansell behind him for three whole laps. And Mansell will never have been more determined to get past anybody. These two are the him right with him Senna blocking away and sliding a lot Mansell weaving this way and that way but Senna won't let him pass he's got the racing line he's going to keep it this last lap coming up of course is going to be the crucial one if I'm really honest about it uh, I should have nudged him up the back quite hard on a couple of the corners and given him a punch or something even if it would have broke my front wing I could have carried on and and maybe won but uh, we had a great race I think the, the incredible thing I'm very proud of is I'm a sportsman. I didn't knock him off. I didn't hit him up the back. Although I do, I do have thoughts about that now <laughs> uh, because he's, he's done it to me enough. Well, Adelaide later in the year. <laughs> yeah, the, the, thing, the thing is, I have to say, we both drove our hearts out with the most incredible sportsmanship, more so on my side than his. But we showed, even at Monaco, how close you could get without hitting anybody and putting on a fantastic race. Ayrton, congratulations, your fifth Monte Carlo Grand Prix win. What an effort at the end. You didn't expect to win this one, though, did you? No, I didn't expect at all. I used my equipment to the best possibilities, but uh, I think, of course, without Mensa stopping for tyres, we, we would never come any closer to a victory. As you can see from the last 10 laps, we gave it everything we could and more. And uh, his car was just too wide to get past. <laughs> I have to say the result wasn't the result that I certainly wanted. 
But I was very proud of the fact that we didn't make contact. And, you know, it was a, is I was very honourable not to, uh, shall we say, help him in the barrier. Well, Nigel, you said he was he was blocking you, but was he brake testing you as well? Oh, he did that a few times, yeah. But when you got someone's mo, you know, you know, um, Ayrton's very good at those kinds of tricks, as as was a few others out there, which I won't mention. But so that's when racing was it was pure racing, like there's no tomorrow. But, you know, you, you touched on something I want to share with you because I've, I've, I've tried to rationalize some of the racing of present day today compared to yesteryear. And without comparing everything, I know the circuits are a lot more dangerous than we were and all the rest of it. But because of that one thing, and because up until 1994, there was always people being injured very significantly out of Formula One. And sadly, at times, sometimes too regularly than we want to uh, admit to, drivers were being killed all the time. So drivers had a healthier respect for the circuits because you could go and hurt yourself on your own. And they certainly had a healthy respect overtaking and vice versa, where, you know, if you put yourself in harm's way, you know you're going to get hurt. And today, the FIA have done such a fantastic job, and so are the manufacturers. The cars are so bulletproof. All I'm saying is there isn't the same respect. And that gives the FIA stewards a harder time to police the races because before, in all honesty, the drivers self-policed more than they ever do now. Nigel, that, that danger you talk about, are you in the Sterling Moss camp of you actually quite enjoyed the, the the challenge that gave you racing on the edge with the the chance of getting injured sterling said is was part of the thrill for him yeah the, the, the thing is you know uh, days gone by and uh, even up until just before 1994 uh, when you went into a 200 mile an hour plus corner that you could take almost flat out and hang on to the car if you lost the car there'd be a huge accident but you couldn't double cross yourself if you had the bravery to try it and the strength and the skill to keep the car on the track you tried it and if you didn't you couldn't now whether you've got the skill or the bravery or whatever there isn't the uh, the dangers there because on a lot of the circuits that we're talking of those fast corners the barriers are 150 meters away and they've got four barriers instead of concrete walls and solid tires and and various things we're talking about corners like the old os curve at, at hockenheim comes to mind where you used to go around there flat out going in at 190 and 200 miles an hour and then coming out at the same speed and you know the, the track and the last corner they named after me in mexico i mean that corner was incredible i mean the start and finish line was just after the corner and we exited the corner at 192 miles an hour it took some uh, courageous uh, balancing of the foot and, and the brain and, and the car. And I don't believe the drivers have um, the same intensity. And if they do and they get it wrong, there's no curbs to hit. They don't get launched straight off the circuit like we used to. And the barriers are, are so far away, they've got a chance to collect themselves before they hit anything, which is good. I'm not, I'm not criticizing it, but it's a different psyche is what i'm saying would you have approached the game differently had you had asphalt tarmac as a runoff for example 
Well, what it allows you to do, it allows you to explore the limits of the car without having an accident. You know, we we had to explore the limits. Uh, you know, fighter pilots explore the limits of a plane before the wings fall off and, you know, what they can do with the plane. The better they know the limits, the far more proficient they are with flying it. It's no different to a race car driver pushing the limits of the car, knowing when it's going to let go. But if you're doing that on a corner where the barriers are right next to you and you get it wrong, you know, you're going to damage the car and the pit crew and the team and the sponsors are going to be really ticked with you. So exploring the limits in yesteryear was very difficult to do on some corners because there was a penalty for getting it wrong. Now, on the corners today, they can go flying in like they do, you know, and, um, and then just, just hop over the flat curb and then just drive straight back out. And, but they've still explored the limits, but there's no penalty for getting it wrong. And, and as I said, I'm all for safety and everything else. I'm just pointing out the psyche of the drivers is very different today to what it was when we were doing it because, you know, we had a lot of drivers. Far more drivers were ruled out of the sport through accidents with broken backs, broken legs, broken arms, whatever, where they couldn't drive the car physically the next year. Well, thank goodness that's not the case so much now. Yeah. But Nigel, it brings me on to... You and Senna, as you say, you kept it clean at Monaco. But my goodness, you two, you two did trip over each other quite a lot in '92. Not always in the races. I think of qualifying at Interlagos. Um, I think in the race in Montreal, you're going for the lead and you make contact. You're arguing over the same bit of asphalt a lot. Why did it come to a head so much in '92? Do you think? He wanted to win the championship, and the most fitting moment for me was when I won the championship in Hungary. He was on the uh, top step, step with me, and he, he just turned to me and he said, you realize how good a feeling that is now, don't you? He said, now you know what a bastard I am, you know, because that's the best feeling in the world. And, you know, there's some people that will go to any lengths, you know, especially when they won it once to, to win it again and again. And, you know, there's a few drivers I could mention that are a true sportsman who win it the right way, and there's a few others which definitely don't win it the right way, but they win it. That's the, that's what matters. Uh, it's an education. But to have Ayrton put his arm around me on the top step, step in uh, Hungary and say a number of things to me, I just looked at him and shook my head. I said, well, at least you admit it, I said to him. <laughs> but actually, Nigel, for you to share that Hungary podium where you clinched the championship with Ayrton and with Gerhard Berger as well. Two guys that you've done so much racing with over the years. It was quite fitting that it was those two. Yeah, it was brilliant. And it was, it was mind numbing, to be honest. It was when you have, uh, oh, you know, you, the whole life. I mean, from even a young child all the way through to winning that first world championship is something so, so special. And, you dream of and you don't think you're ever going to do it and even now talking to you i think i don't know there's there's i think there's 27 i think world champions in the world since the conception of formula one racing it's a very private elite club and i'm just thrilled to um, be part of it no doubt you had a good car and therefore ricardo patrese in in the second williams should have been perhaps your main rival that year, but was it still Senna? Was he the first name that you looked for on the timing screens that year? Well, first of all, Ricardo is not only a fantastic individual, he's an incredible, brilliant race car driver as well. It's just that 
I trusted the car more than he could. But no, I mean, your, your teammate within the team is the first person you got to beat. But, you know, before we started racing, when I got on the scales and Ricardo realized I dropped like 16 pounds in weight and I looked like lean and keen and fit. And, and he just looks at me and thought, wow. And, and then obviously we started to qualify and, and pace and race. And, you know, I, I just said, well, what I've got to do with, uh, with Ricardo is uh, just make sure that he's a fantastic teammate for the whole year. And if you remember, I don't know whether you know this story, we, we, we get to um, San Paolo and, and Ricardo is really unhappy saying that my car is one and a half to two seconds a lap quicker and it's all in the car. Do you remember I persuaded Patrick Head and, and Frank Williams that the second qualifying, we swapped cars. We swapped my car for his car and his car for my car uh, because I didn't want a teammate being incredibly unhappy for the whole year. And I said, look, we're such great teammates. I don't have a problem. I'm, I'm on provisional pole. Give him my car. I'll have his car and we'll go out and qualify. And my, um, my first flying lap in the second qualifying, I came round start finish line because his car wasn't quite as nice as mine in some ways because it was set up for him. I was one and a half seconds a lap quicker in his car than he'd been all weekend. And then we obviously swapped cars back at the end of the session. And Ricardo had to actually understand that when he looks at the computer readouts in a number of corners, I was 60 and 70 kilometers an hour quicker than him in his car. That's a mind-blowing amount of speed. But the, the, the thing was, uh, Ricardo and I cemented our relationship long before that. He could see what a fair number one driver I was. I could see he was incredibly upset. Frank and Patrick took a great risk because they thought, well, maybe my car is a lot quicker than his. But it wasn't. It was the same. And I was really pleased with that too because, you know, my second lap or my third lap was as quick as my quickest lap in my car. So it basically, when you do that for a teammate and a friend, all that conjecture and all those thoughts can just go out the window and you can get on with the job in hand. Yeah, I would imagine that broke him as well. <laughs> no, <laughs> It's been pretty I, I, hard I, I, to get your head around. I don't think so. Ricardo is such a professional driver. It focused him on what he was doing wrong in certain places and he knew he had to work hard at that. Well, Nigel, if that didn't break him, I reckon qualifying at Silverstone would have done. Now, for those people who can't remember, it was you were 1.9 seconds faster than anybody else, including Ricardo. Extraordinary. Was that like the best pole lap of your career? The best of the 32? I, I was on a mission and I was being revved up by Patrick Head. He said, there's no point in me going out. And I said, oh, well, we might be able to go a quick, quick, bit quicker. And he said, there's no way you can go quicker. You can't get into the A-teams, I think it was. And I was on a high. I'm always on a high at the British Grand Prix. And um, I thought, well, I'll do something a bit crazy for one lap. Um, and I hung on a bit more than I'd done before, which was 99.999 tenths. It might have been 110 tenths on some, some corners. And it was a close call. And as soon as I went past the um, start finishing line on that particular lap, I slowed up real quick and said, well, basically, I'm not going to kill myself because I came close to putting the car in the wall a couple of times. 
And of course, to my delight, I'd broken into, I think it was 18.6 from memory I, I, I did, which was then quicker like, like crazy. And uh, yeah, it was, it was electrifying, but the fans, they can electrify a driver. I know Lewis feels the same at the British Grand Prix. And you do it for the fans, you do it for the team, you do it for the sponsors, and you do it for yourself. But for me, the fans were a priority. Nigel, can we just explore that? Because you've said many times that the crowd at Silverstone is worth lap time. And I don't understand why, because it's not as if you're you're not trying at other races. Of course you are. So where does that time come from? You lift your euphoria, you, you lift your limits, adrenaline. You get a bigger buzz of adrenaline in front of your home crowd. If you're proud, you're representing your country and you're proud and you want to go quick. Even with some really horrendous cars at Silverstone, I've delivered some great results. I mean, that, that when I came second in 88, I mean, it's crazy. I only finished two races, I came second in both of them. But you just deliver. And, and it is extraordinary. And, you know, you're absolutely right. I mean, if you could bottle that, and bottle that feeling and, and experience and take it everywhere you go, you'll do a much better job. It's, it's like professional golfers as well when they go to a, another le- level of, of, of concentration and, and execution of hitting the golf ball. And, and now having that golf ball on a piece of string, uh, radar to the flag, those things generally happen at times. And, and when you see it happen in real life, it's pretty awesome, but then try and replicate it all the time. It's impossible. Do you believe that racing drivers suffer from form, that they can just be out of form sometimes? I would say racing car drivers have the biggest motivational kick in any sport, bar none in the world. Maybe horse racing, jumping, I don't know, because that's very, very dangerous. I certainly never had a lack of form in a race car, and I'll tell you the reason why. Because if you lose your concentration at 200 miles an hour for a split second, it's not only too late, you'll be too slow. You can be in the war and you can lose your life. So the motivation is, you know, you're focused. You really are focused. You can be less focused and be slower. And that can be through you're not feeling well or whatever. But if you're doing your job, you're focused and you're focused all the time because it's not like hitting a bad shot with golfing, hitting it out of bounds or hitting it in the water. You know, you just get another ball out of the bag and take a penalty and go. In racing, you get hurt. In our day, you used to get hurt real bad and you used to get killed. So I think, yes, some drivers can occasionally have a bad weekend, but it's rare. Before we move on from Silverstone, that track invasion. Oh, my goodness. Sensational. Yeah, just <laughs> sensational. <laughs> Nigel Mansell wins the 1992 British Grand Prix in terrific style. Hands off the wheel. He sees the opportunity to become the world champion getting greater and greater as he completes that winning lap and is now on his wind-down lap. Now, the, now the tradition, and it's not one I approve of, to be quite honest with you, as Patrese comes through in second place, is for the crowd to go onto the course as they do in Le Mans. And that's very dangerous, of course, because there are drivers a lap or so behind the leaders who are still going at racing speed. Slot, I think he will be doing extremely well. I mean, I think you even said after the race that you did actually hit someone because they was just too mad. 
yeah, no, they, they they flew him over to the Isle of Man for me to have tea with him, and and that yeah, I ran over his leg, so he got he got second third degree burns on the leg because the tire was two hundred degrees, but he was so happy. <laughs> but I mean, it, it's terrifying at uh, Club Corner because you know there's no way I could drive the car anymore. I mean, I, I'm going to hurt somebody. So we stopped, and I, and then I started trying to pull things off the car, and I just said to them. You touch the car, you take anything from the car, I'll be disqualified. Instantly, I had thousands or hundreds of people around the car acting as security staff. It was amazing. It was, they, they are just so delightful. And um, I cherish all those memories very, very much. And, and Silverstone, especially. Brands Hatch and Silverstone, having won, you know, twice at Brands Hatch in 85, 86. And then 87 Silverstone, 91, 92, just marvellous memories. Nigel, can I ask you a difficult question? Brands Hatch or Silverstone? I think in the day, um, they both were just as brilliant tracks with one another. The old Brands Hatch, oh, it was very technical. I mean, a lot of changes in up and down. I mean, going down paddock. I mean, you go past the start-finish line and then go light, and you're, you're doing 195 miles an hour in a turbo car going into that big dip. It was very challenging, Brands Hatch. And um, yeah, very technical. Love the circuit. Obviously, the circuit got outgrown uh, because of various things and safety things. Going to Silverstone, the old Silverstone, I think was just uh, magical because, wow, you, you had to be, I'll say it, you had to be so stupid and so brave you know, to go into some of those corners because we had sleepers straight in front of us. If you got it wrong and ran into it, if you remember David Pearlie's accident there where he pulled 118G or 128G and was lucky to even survive, I mean, the old uh, Silverstone where uh, you're flat round cups, you're as flat as you could be through Beckett's on qualifying tyres, you were flat round stowe and you couldn't breathe. And then you, you breathe, breathe for about one or two seconds before going into club. And, and that had a little elevation change in the middle. And you're a flat round club. And then, you know, going up through the kink and, you know, and then up to Woodcut. It, the, the, the old circuit was, I think you had to be so brave. I mean, I was privileged to be part of the team where Keke Rosberg did the first 150 mile an hour average qualifying lap. Yeah, I mean, my goodness me. And then obviously the changes with Silverstone, uh, they improved it for safety, but they've kept basically a great corner with cops. Beckett's is always a superb corner. Obviously Stowe's changed and in my opinion, not so good, but, and then club is completely changed uh, to what it was. Silverstone's fantastic, but the old Silverstone, yeah, it was just amazing. Is that the one that wins the old Silverstone? I think the old Silverstone from the point of view that you had to hang on to everything to do a quick lap qualifying on qualifying tyres. I mean, oh, blimey, just thinking about it now, it, uh, it can rattle your brains thinking about it. Thinking when you're halfway around the corner, are you going to make it? I mean, th that was worrying then. You know, and that's why I say the psyche is very different then to what it is now. You've heard me talk about how important it is to have a VPN to protect your online privacy. And choosing a VPN you trust is just as important. If you're looking for top security, incredible speed and ease of use, then ExpressVPN can help. 
In fact, Business Insider, The Verge, and many other tech journals rate ExpressVPN the number one VPN in the world. It keeps you secure because it doesn't log your activity online. They even developed Trusted Server, technology that makes their VPN servers incapable of storing any data at all. ExpressVPN is blazingly fast, which means you can stream in HD quality with zero buffering. And that's thanks to the fact it now uses Lightway, a new VPN protocol engineered to make user speeds faster than ever. And it's so simple to use that you don't need to be technologically savvy to get started. Just fire up the app and tap one button to connect and you're all set. So protect yourself at expressvpn.com slash grid today and get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com slash grid. Visit expressvpn.com slash grid to learn more. Let's move on to Hungary. You go into that race, race 11 of the season, first opportunity to win the title. What was your mindset going into that race? Did you try and do anything different or was it was it to keep doing the same thing, approach the race the same way? Yeah, I, I think evaluating, I mean, you know, Patrick had, would say to me, I mean, I got on with Patrick so well. I admire, I admire him because I call Patrick the most incredible engineer and, and uh, you know, uh, overall chief person of any team. And he used to say to me, just go away, the car's fine. But I used to just stare at the car for half an hour sometimes or I make out I was asleep on the corner and, and just look at the car and my mechanics were really brief so no one could disturb me. But we were just checking what's likely to go wrong or could go wrong to stop us running. And so, you know, when you got a, a winning um, combination, you know, you've got to go over everything, you know, even the tires, the tires and balancing the tires and the pressures of the tires, the wings, the gurney flaps, you know, the suspension, you know, uh, the cross weights of the car. You know, I didn't want it within one pound. I wanted it exact. You know, David Brown, my engineer, was marvellous and did such a fantastic job for me. Dickie Stanford, the chief mechanic as well. Um, I mean, I was so pernickety with the car and so protective of that car. Nobody touches the wings. Nobody touches anything unless they have to be touched. You know, I, I used to set that car up with David and with the mechanics, and I, I just say to them, even if I haven't done the time, that's the winning car. Don't touch anything. You can check it. Do not take anything apart unless you have to. We've got that absolutely perfect now. And then we used to get the tyres and, and make sure the tyres were balanced to the car. And the car became an extension of yourself when you're in it. Yeah. I mean, when people don't realise that when you're at one with a car, when you slide in the car, you're putting on your pair of trousers. Your trousers are fitting you. Your car is fitting you. Your underpants are fitting you. All these senses you have in your body come from the car. And if you get a weird sense from somewhere and you question it, then that's already delaying you on your mission to be quick because you're trying to have to rationalize in your brain what the hell's going on. I think the fantastic thing with looking back in the 92 season was, you know, if ever you have to react to what the car's going to do, you can never be quick. You have to anticipate what the car's doing, be ahead of the car before it does it, 
So you've already corrected it as soon as it's doing it. It does not delay your progress. You still keep the speed. But if your retro reaction to the car twitching and doing this and you're inputting after the car's done it, it's already too late. And if it's not too late, you're too slow. And you were clearly on top of it. I was at one with the car because I wanted to be. And when I wasn't at one with the car, I risked a lot more than people know. I, I, I put it out there on a number of uh, circuits, which I wasn't happy about because sometimes I got up in the morning and said, will I still be here tonight? Because if you screw up in a bad way, it was a mega smash. And I, I didn't want to have any, any serious accident because then the championship goes out the window. So that's the balancing act. But, um, yeah, it was, it was a tough call, call some days. It really was. So in that Hungary race, at one point you drop out of the top six because you have to make a pit stop. Yeah, we had um, another puncher. Delightful. Another, <laughs> another kind of Monaco, here we go, or whatever. But um, at what point did you think at that moment, well, it's not going to happen today? No, I was, I was energised and I was, I was disappointed and I was upset, obviously because all of a sudden you're on your back foot again. But for the first time, the realization hit me because I only needed to be third or second uh, to tie it. And as soon as I think it was Gerhard, I passed uh, to get up into second. And as soon as I did that, then I, I really laid back in the car and just, I, I treated that car like the first date of the person you love and you're going to marry, you know, you you just, you don't put a foot wrong. You stroke it. There's no quick movements. You don't want to get slapped in your face. You know, you just want to just caress it. And, and I was so delicate with the car. And even now you can see, if you can see, I'm going goosebumply now with the arms, just thinking about it. Because so many things over so many years, it's never over till it's over. And um, so, yeah, I, I, was, I was so worried what was going to happen. I mean, n not unlike, uh, it was similar feelings, I have to say, to when I won that most amazing opening race for Ferrari in 89 in Rio. Was, that was just ridiculous. But that's another story. And he's up to the last corner now. Bansell finishes, and he's world champion. As you cross the line in Hungary, can you remember now, 30 years later, what the overriding emotion was? Disbelief. Is it really true? Have we really done it? Um, emptiness. Shock. Why emptiness? Uh, that surprises me. It's, it's the flash of adrenaline where everything stands still. You know, when something means so much to you, and you think you've actually done it and achieved it, and you spent 40 years of your life attaining that. It's, uh, it's the most um, amazing, amazing feeling where everything's in slow motion, like there's no tomorrow. And I think where that emptiness comes from is, is the overwhelming relief. Your car finished the race. You've won the championship. Is it real? Have we done it? You know, you're questioning yourself. So I think basically what happens, I think your brain upsurges to a point that your brain fuses. So when it fuses, there's emptiness <laughs> because you can't compute anything. <laughs> and Nigel, I guess that sense of disbelief, emptiness, call it what we will, is a reflection of, of the near misses. 
those three near misses I get. Yeah, yeah. I, I think the lovely story there I have to share with you with the late great Sir Surly Moss. Sterling came up to me, um, I think it was uh, my 17th or 18th Grand Prix win or something at Silverstone. He said, hey, chap. He said, uh, thank you so much. I said, oh, hi, Sterling. How you doing? He said, brilliant. He said, you're the most winning most driver in the history of Formula One, never to have won a world championship. <laughs> I said, you bastard. <laughs> I said, that's rotten that that is. He said, no, he said, but it's on you now. He said, you've won more Grand Prix than me and not to have won a world championship. So he was bridesmaid four times. I was bridesmaid three times. So I was very pleased when I won again at Silverstone to win the world champion. Well, Hungary, when I won the world championship, I handed it back to him when I saw it next. I said, Sterling, you can have your accolade back now, mate. And I cannot repeat what he said to me. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was very colourful, very, very funny. And uh, Sir Sterling was a marvellous man. Marvellous man. Nigel Mansell, by finishing second and getting six points, is the world champion of 1992. And Frank Williams is with Jonathan Palmer. Frank, it's been five years since you won the World Drivers' Championship. How does it feel to be there now for that brilliant effort? Pissed off it took so long, Jonathan, quite frankly. Now that it's here, we're thrilled a bit, especially for Nigel. Nigel, three times runner-up. Luck has always seemed against you, and now you've finally done it. And some people said you would never do it. What do you say now to those doubters? Well, I think they're wrong. <laughs> so, look, you've won it. There are still five races of the season to go. What becomes the goal then? You, you've won the championship. You can't do any better than that. No, I was, I was looking forward to defending it and, you know, thinking, well, you know, we can have a great year in 93, regardless whether Prost is um, my teammate or not. And then I found out that um, within 24 hours of winning it, I didn't have a drive for next year. So that was a bit of a shock. Uh, the brain definitely went into neutral then. So 24 hours of Hungary, you were told that you didn't have a drive for 93? Yeah, and if I did want to drive, then my salary would be half the salary I got paid in 92. So it wasn't really a good offer, was it? <laughs> no. But anyway, look, I'm so grateful even today to have achieved what we did. And I think Paul Newman said, when one door closes, another one opens. And Paul Newman and Carl House opened me um, a door to go to IndyCar Racing in 93. And it was an incredible adventure, a very painful one on the second race. But, you know, we won another championship back to back. But I, I do often wonder that, you know, 93 was another championship to be won. And, but then, of course, look what happened in 94. It was just shocking. Anyway, it was great. We, we had those remaining races, but they were, they were very emotional every race. Um, we'd won the championship and Ayrton Senna saying to the team uh, with Frank and Patrick saying, look, just so you know, I'll drive for nothing. You don't have to pay me. So, I mean, how can I can compete with that? You can't. Yeah, he, he was stirring it, wasn't he? Did did Bernie Ecclestone get involved in these negotiations? Because we know absolutely that he didn't want you to go IndyCar racing. Yeah, I, I think he could have been a lot stronger. You know, I needed some guidance at that time, which I didn't really get. I mean, it was awful. But, um, but you know, look, we, 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 came, um, we came and did what we did. And then the hardest thing I think I did was then having to come back in 94 and drive the Ayrton's car for the last four races. And that was very tough, very tough. 
Do you think you would have beaten Prost in 93? I don't think there's any question that, you know, um, I think at the end of the day, if the cars had been reliable, I had such an advantage with my upper body strength. I'd have got the job done. And the confidence in, in 92 was just amazing. And having my foot repaired for 94 was, it felt so much easier to drive a car <laughs> without having a, a bad left foot. So, uh, yeah, it would it would have been it would have been quite good, and uh, it's just a shame that didn't happen. But you know, I think Agent knew Patrick Head and and uh, obviously uh, Sir Frank for the wonderful times uh, that we had together. And, and and hey, look, we won twenty eight races with them, the winning most drive ever for the Williams team, and we won a world championship for them as well. So you know, it wasn't auto loss. <laughs> Nigel, just quickly, when Ayrton died and Frank got on the telephone to you. After everything that had happened in 92, did you think about not racing for him? It was a bit more complicated than that. I mean, hypothetically, what people don't realise is that without mentioning any names, uh, my contracts in America brought out for the next four years. So, and I was told by Carl Haas that if I ever wanted to drive again, I'd have to go across the pond again. So I was a very small pawn in an incredible political, uh, powerful game. And obviously, that's why we ended up driving for Williams again. And, and then we got, we got screwed over again because we drove in 94 and we won the last race in 94, which was fantastic. And then I had a contract for 95 and they didn't honor the contract in 95. So the whole thing was just a nightmare. And I was very tired of it by then. So I can't say too much more because obviously there was a lot of uh, things going on that we can't talk about. Nigel, I don't want to end this on, a, on that, that note. Let's just reflect on that 92 season as a whole. How did it change your life? How did being world champion change your life? I think because we'd been so close three times before, it was an anti-climax, really. And I don't want to be negative about it, but I think the fact then I wasn't able to defend the world championship in the manner I won it, and I did something else. It was a very short-lived experience because if you're still representing in your sport as the current world champion, there had been a lot of things then that year that would have changed your life. But I wasn't exposed to that. I was exposed to another way of life in America. So, of course, it changes your perspective of life and it changes the fact that um, all these people that said I wouldn't have a clue how to win a race or even you know, think about winning a world championship. And a lot of people wrote when my tire exploded in Australia, when I lost the first world championship by one point, I should retire then because I'll never get another chance again. So I think I take great joy in proving a lot of people wrong most of the time. It's just a shame that for whatever reason, we didn't get the support from the sponsors and the teams that we should have done. And my admiration for Lewis to have the support of McLaren and to have the support of the mice of Mercedes and the continued support is truly fantastic. It's a great credit to Lewis and his team to be able to be, you know, like with Michael Schumacher, like with Nelson Piquet, like with Alan Prost. I mean, these people come and they're backed by their countries. They're, they're backed by the manufacturers of the country, i.e. Renault. They're backed by the fuel companies of the country, ELF or whatever the fuel company was in Brazil with Ayrton. And 
they keep their drives and they're able to get better and better and better. It's like for me, Lewis Hamilton operates on a different level now because he expects to win every time you go out. And we, we unfortunately, as with Damon Hill, as with a number of other people, with Gilles Villeneuve and very, not Gilles, uh, Jacques, um, Williams changed and didn't support, you know, once they got the job done, which is a great shame. And when you look back, and I'm sure Williams must look back because this is where Red Bull has been fantastic with Adrian, He's contracted that he can't talk to anyone. You know, so astute, so clever, because Adrian, what a fantastic designer he is. I mean, just amazing, amazing guy. Congratulations, Adrian, just brilliant. And um, saying that, I really think in hindsight, Frank and Patrick and even the sponsors of the Williams team, they should have kept some of their drivers longer. They should have kept the dream team at that time with Adrian, Patrick, you know, Sir Frank and, and everything else, and not get mixed up with other people offering their services for nothing and everything else just to destabilize the teams and everything else so they're very clever at that yeah well nigel it was a wonderful season nine wins 14 poles i know a lot of people still look back and go how amazing so well done 30 years on (laughs) it was sweet it was sweet i'll tell you i gotta tell you it's another funny story Someone said to me the other day, it's when I got pole position in 92 at uh, Monaco, I should have been given the Rolex watch, 1992 engraved for pole position. The first time I knew about this watch when someone was selling it, because I never got given it. So I'm saying publicly now, I'd like the watch I got for pole position at Monaco in 92 off Rolex, because it was never given to me. So who the hell had that? (laughs) <laughs> someone out there knows nigel <laughs> yeah no they do they, they can make a present of it to me now you know so 30 years later this is the watch you want because i never got it <laughs> i'll let you know if we track it down oh nigel it's been wonderful to talk to you and and to reminisce thank you so much for your time really fun no it's a pleasure and just finishing big thank you to all the fans Safe driving with all the drivers this year, and I really sincerely hope the championship's going to be very close. They've got a lot of interesting new rules. They've got ground effects to attend with. One final thing from me. Now, you mentioned 2022. Which of the current grid, which driver on the grid is most like Nigel Mansell? Oh, uh, well, I, I don't know, really. I mean, I think not as consistent what I would say I would do, but... You've got Lewis, you've got Max. Um, you've got a number of other drivers that can, can put it out there when they really want to. You know, um, I'm, I'm a fan of uh, Alonso and uh, Seb Vettel when he, gets, when he gets in the right car. I mean, how they didn't win Hungary um, last year and you know, then got disqualified, I think, for some sort of fuel infringement. I'd love some of the rules to be looked at where you know, you don't dry your heart out or all the race and then get disqualified for what can be a, I don't know, the rules just need to be changed. Like they've been changing in golf where it makes it fairer for everybody. But there's a number of, there's a number of drivers and there's some good young drivers coming up. There really are. I mean, I mean, I mean, Lando, I mean, he really does try and put it out there at times. Suddenly I'm, I like the way he drives. And I mean, my goodness me, um, Lewis's partner this year, how good is that? George, yeah. George Russell. Yeah. I mean, I mean, George now has got the um, opportunity of a lifetime. 
and I wish him all the best there too. And uh, I think I think Lewis might be surprised how quick he is too. Yep. I guess having a, a young whippersnapper like George will keep Lewis motivated and focused and it probably it will help Lewis maybe. Yeah, I, I think Lewis is such a overall complete class act now. He doesn't have to work too hard. He's just operated on a different level. Nigel, thank you so much for your time. Wonderful to speak. Lovely to speak to you. All the best to everybody. Wasn't it wonderful to hear from Nigel again? He remembers everything from his championship year so clearly. He even provided details that I'd never previously heard. I loved reliving it all, and I hope you did too. Thank you for your time, Nigel. It was great to chat again. And please remember to send in any thoughts or memories that you have on Nigel or that 92 season. Were you at any of the races that year, or even in Hungary where he sealed the title? Please let me know at Tom Clarkson F1 on Twitter or use the hashtag F1 Beyond the Grid. Nigel is the 16th Formula One world champion we've had on Beyond the Grid. So why don't you take a scroll through the back catalogue to hear from Lewis Hamilton, Sebastian Vettel, Kimi Raikkonen, Mika Hakkinen and many, many more. Next, let's have a look at what you sent in about the show we did with Susie Wolfe last week. Many of you enjoyed hearing from Susie, so here are a few of your comments. Rhonda Andarini got in touch with this. Thank you for this podcast, she says. Susie definitely has no hesitation in facing whatever the challenges are, and I can see myself in her stories. I'm chasing my doctoral degree, and the conversation makes me believe to keep going. Well, Susie is an inspiration, Rhonda. Keep going, and thanks for getting in touch. How about this from Ash Dawson? My workmate went to school in Oban with Susie. It's great to hear about her journey to Formula One in her own words. All female racing drivers of today owe it to Susie. Well, I love that detail, Ash, about your workmate going to school with Susie. It's a small world. And let's do one more before we go. Let's hear from Ann Dodds. Just listened to the Susie Wolf interview and I was so impressed. I'm also from Scotland and have followed Formula One all my life. This was one of my fave interviews. Susie is so on the ball. Performance is power in all aspects of life. I'm a dentist and it hit home to me too. Well, thank you for the note, Anne, and I'm glad you enjoyed the show. Well, that's pretty much it for another week. But here's one more thing before I go. I'd love it if you checked out the latest episode of F1 Nation as well. It's our preview to the Australian Grand Prix. Search your podcast app or Formula One's YouTube channel for F1 Nation. Thanks for listening. F1 Beyond the Grid is produced by F1 and Audio Boom Studios. Until next time, keep it flat out.